From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, We're recording Monday afternoon after another win. Uh, from the Timbers at home. Not not quite the 4-0 win we saw against Houston last week, uh, but the Timbers did beat FC Dallas 1-0. Uh, still slowly, but but still trying to move up the table right now. Didn't it seem like it was going to be more than one nothing? Are we already <laughs> expecting just when the Timbers score a goal, the floodgates will open? Because legitimately, once they broke through late in the first half on Sunday night, I just kind of felt like, oh, maybe they won't score four this time, but surely this won't be the last goal of the game. It feels like we're already getting a little bit spoiled <laughs> by this Timbers attack. Maybe. I, I think, yes, but I also think I, how the game was sort of playing out, it sort of felt like this was a hard-fought, evenly matched game in the first half. Neither team was really getting the advantage. There was... Um, neither team had a shot on goal until the Timbers scored. It sort of felt like that would be um, what the Timbers needed to sort of break through. Uh, I, I think that's why I had that feeling as well. It did not pan out that way. It was uh, actually a, a pretty nervous game, I would assume, for Timbers fans and probably uh, Giovanni Savarese on the sidelines as well. Um, the second half was not sort of that breakthrough that I we look back at the Houston game, and, and obviously uh, it was. Um mm-hmm. Let's start with predictions, though, because I think my prediction also speaks to thinking that they were going to break through and keep going. I, I said the Timbers were going to get a 3-1 win. That's, I said win, so that's right. <laughs> um, I don't think I got the sort of the feeling of the game correct. Yeah. You, you are, you're killing it on your predictions recently, though. I, I, I Suddenly, you can see into the future. I, I don't know where that came from. You said a Timbers clean sheet. Yeah, I was pretty confident in that too. But I have to say, and you just hinted on it in leading into the predictions, towards the end of that game, it didn't look like they were going to keep a clean sheet. And I expect if you looked at the expected goals numbers after this game, it would hint that the Timbers probably shouldn't have kept a clean sheet. And I asked Giovanni Savarese straight up about it after the game. You know, these post-game interviews I do are a little bit weird because they're for the club's website. So a lot of times you can't get too direct hitty with the questions. But I straight out asked him, you know, you kept your third straight clean sheet at home, but... They had two or three really good chances at the end of this game. How do you feel the defense performed? And he said, fantastic. Clean sheet. They gave all they could. That's the right answer to give if you're a coach because you don't want to be going in when your team kept a clean sheet. But there were three or four chances there that you really thought Dallas could have converted. I, I... if I were the Timbers coaching staff, would be taking a really close look at those and asking what happened. I suspect what happened, and Giovanni Savarese did say this on record, was the team was just giving the ball away in terrible areas and putting their back line in terrible situations. And Credit to them for some good emergency defending, but I'd be a little bit worried about it if I were t- the Timbers. Yeah, I, I, I that kind of leads into how what I wanted to do, start um, talking about this game a little bit. I think it is an interesting performance to look at. The Timbers get the win. They get the clean sheet. Uh, they get three points. They they move out of uh, last place in the Western Conference to nine. Leap, four- yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so close at the bottom. When I, uh, yeah. It was probably, what, like 11.45 last night that I looked at the table, and it's like... One, I hate when I call it table, by the way. I should have to pay, I should have to donate to the 107ists every time that I do that. Every time I call it table instead of standings, put some money there. However, jumping from 12th to 9th in the standings, 
I was shocked. Like they're with it. They're almost within reach of the line already. Yeah, I, I mean they're only four points below the red line. Like like we've been saying, they're they're not going to catch LAFC or or something would have to be pretty crazy. They'd have to go on a pretty great roll to get anywhere close to the, uh, where LAFC's at. But in terms of the red line, yeah, it's all pretty bottled up at the bottom. Um, so from that perspective, it, it's a really positive result. But as you pointed out, uh, Dallas, I, you said three four. I, I think there was two. Um, that I pointed out in my game story where it was just looked basically like a sitter in front of goal that Dallas uh, in two situations kicked over the bar, uh, kicked into the stands. How do you sort of, uh, you know, evaluate this performance? How do you sort of feel coming out of this game? Well, I kind of live in two worlds on this one. There's always a world when where you do have to judge teams by bottom lines because at the end of the day, at the end of the season, that's all that matters, your ability to get those bottom lines in place. So the fact that they kept a clean sheet was a positive. You don't know how the team would have responded if they did give up one of those goals. Maybe they would have still found a way to win the game. That being said, I haven't gotten a chance to look at the tape, but it sure did seem like what Giovanni Savaresi was saying, it rings true to me. You're giving the ball away high in your own half at the edge of your defending third, and Dallas is able to, within two touches, put your back line in terrible situations. It's not quite what was happening at the beginning of the year, but at the beginning of the year, the problem was less the central defense, even though it took us a couple days to realize, a couple games to realize that. It was less the central defense than the situations that the team was putting the central defense in. And I really thought that at the end of last night, we saw something that was kind of symptomatic throughout the rest of the game, too, where the team wasn't as sharp as they could have been. There was a little bit too much of a relaxed feeling with the team. I don't want to say it's overconfidence because I haven't talked to anybody about that to see if it's overconfidence. But the precision that the team needed to execute, we saw a lack of it in the first half and how long it took them to break through. And then we saw a lack of it at the end when they almost let the game slip away. So to me, Jamie, I want to know what you think about it. But... I would be concerned from the point of view of, hey, Portland, I'll, I'll just say we here as if I'm talking like a coach. We've got a good thing going here, but we also have to realize what it took to get this good thing going, and we might be letting it slip a little bit. Let's catch it now. Let's stop it now. Let's get back on the right page. Yeah, I think you have to go out of that game feeling positive that the Timbers were able to grind out the win. Um, that clearly is something they would not have been able to do earlier in the season uh, based on how they were playing. You have to be happy that they got that clean sheet, that the defense in moments was able to step up. They also obviously got a little lucky with how Dallas uh, dealt with some of their opportunities. But in terms of a confidence perspective, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, getting the win at home is a good thing. But there is a dip in performance, I think, from when you look at what I was saying last week. I think their best performance of the season against Houston to this game. Um, it's interesting because uh, Savarese said after the game that he thought the team looked a little tired towards the end. Obviously, they had been dealing with a tough schedule, but this we'd been talked about that. I, I mean, they completely rotated their lineup versus Montreal, so I don't really see why there should have been any uh, sort of fatigue in this game. And that's definitely not something you want to see going forward, especially as they continue to deal with packed schedules. And some of these players are probably going to have to play on short rest. You're not always going to have it set up in a way where you can have your stars skip a trip to Montreal. So I think there are some concerning elements, some positive elements. The question for me is, is this sort of just how yesterday happened? Did they just come out a little bit flat in the second half? Or, or is this something that's going to become more of a problem? Because if we're looking at their recent history, I think overall they've been moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's just 
all manageable problems, right? Um, even like you're talking about the tired issue. There's no reason why the guys should have been tired. Maybe it was more that they looked tired than they actually were tired. So you try to attack that problem and say, okay, what was the reason for this dip in performance? You think about the game on Sunday. I don't, I don't really think of that as being played at a particularly high tempo. Particularly in the first half, once the Timbers, I would say, you know, early in the first half, the Timbers started okay, then Dallas started coming into the match around the seven-minute mark. But by the 15-minute mark, Portland was pushing Dallas deep in their own end, and that's kind of how the rest of the half played out. I don't think of that half as being a high-tempo half. So come the second half, why is the team looking tired? Maybe it's just tired because they've had to play a lot of games over the last week and a half. Maybe that's just it. Even with rotating people out, you've got players that are playing their third 90-minute game against MLS competition in 10 days. Maybe that's just going to be an inherent opportunity for your performance to slip. But I am kind of end up where you end up, Jamie. Every game can't be perfect. You're going to come out of it with issues. I think it's almost a silver lining that the issues that we see from Sunday's game are manageable ones. Yeah. Um, Christopher asked, what, what was the most impressive thing from the Timbers win Sunday? We sort of talked about the negatives. I, I think, for me, this question leads into some discussions about a few players that I want to talk about. But, but did anything stand out for you on the more positive side? I think we should get to talking about individual players because I was going to mention an individual player as the yeah. most impressive thing. But I would say in general, although it slipped in the second half, I thought the game really started to turn when the Timbers were able to win 50-50 balls in the middle of the field. And I would point directly to Diego Chara and Christian Paredes uh, for this. I think we're going to talk about Diego Chara later in this podcast. But you think about that first half chance where Christian Paredes wins a ball at the end of, edge of the 18. It gets deflected into the box and then he takes a sharp angle shot from the right of Dallas's goal. It wasn't a very high percentage uh, chance, but just those type of opportunities that they're generating off of reading play, reacting, winning those balls, I thought that happened a lot. And it kind of dovetails into the second thing, Jamie. I thought the team's pressing high and winning balls high was about as good as I've seen them do in the whole Giovanni Savarese era. And of course, at the beginning of last year, whether the team was going to be a high-pressing team playing a high line, that was talked about a lot. I think we really saw on Sunday an example of how when the team elects to do it, their pressing could be really, really problematic for other teams. Yeah. You mentioned Chara, and I, I think let's just get right into talking about him, and we can talk about some other players as well. But um, we got a ton of questions uh, about Chara. I mean, Adam asked, how good is Diego Chara? I, I think... It's clear that anyone who watched that game uh, couldn't have walked away with it without being pretty impressed <laughs> with yeah. Chara's performance, which is a lot to say, given that I, I, I think most games you have to come out being pretty happy with Chara's performance. Um, he had, I think, a team links five or six tackles, like 15 recoveries, something like that, um, <laughs> which I, it was pretty crazy. I mean, just his ability to win back possession um, – just control the midfield, make things tough for Dallas, uh, go in with some really key tackles. Also, his dummy on the goal um, that led to Fernandez being able to score, that was almost sort of secondary to how dominant he was defensively and with his performance in the midfield. Uh, Gio said after the game he thought it was the best performance he'd seen from Char since he'd been here, which is a really big compliment. It is, isn't it? Um, boy, where to start on this? So we're recording this at about 1 o'clock, a little after 1 o'clock on Monday. And all throughout my Monday mornings to this point, they usually involve meetings about what content we're going to produce for the rest of the week here. It's been a nonstop conversation about Diego Chara. 
he was so good on Sunday. And then stemming from Giovanni Savarese's comments, there's a conversation around here at Providence Park. Was that one of the best, if not the best, Diego Chara games we've ever seen? And whenever you have those discussions, you automatically gravitate towards the games that are most important, the ones that are in the playoffs or the ones that are against Seattle. And you tend to overlook those little mundane Sunday night games against Dallas that end up one to nothing. But when you think about how Diego Chara played on Sunday, you really couldn't have asked for anything more from his performance. It was just dominant. It was a textbook display of even points when he was fouling. He committed a foul in the first half, I believe, um, on the edge of the Portland penalty area. Pretty clear foul. He came in, got got a lot, of, made a lot of contact. But it's the type of foul that you want your midfielders to actually take the risk on. Like this is a high leverage situation for your team. If you commit a foul here, look, you're 75 yards from goal. But if you actually pull off this tackle, you're right in on goal. Take a chance. Commit a foul if you have to here. And we've seen Diego Tra make that play so many times. You know, people point to his fouls a lot, and they should. He obviously is the most prolific fouler in MLS history. <laughs> but just about every one of his fouls makes sense. And I thought it was the same thing on, on Sunday. I don't want to dwell on his fouls because it's way down the list of things that were positive about Sunday's performance. But it's an example of even the things you want to criticize about Diego Tra, they're actually really good <laughs> things. So I'm looking forward to the rest of my day because... Uh, part of the meetings this morning, we decided like, hey, we wrote about Diego Char last week, but his performance on Sunday was so good. We're going to write about it again this week. I'm looking forward to sitting down with the film, making 27 gifts, forcing everybody to look at him and say, hey, these are all the little things that Diego Char does. Yeah, I think I'm not sure the Timbers win that game without Chara. Like, obviously, as we said, um, Dallas made some mistakes. If Dallas had done better with their opportunities, if they'd been more clinical in the final third, maybe they get an equalizer. Maybe they even come all the way back and win. There, there are questions about how positive you want to look at this performance overall. But if Chara hadn't been there, I mean, Savarese said after the game that he didn't feel the team was as good with the ball as it needed to be in the second half um, in terms of maintaining possession and not losing the ball. If Chara hadn't been there in the midfield to sort of win back possession over and over again in that game and help the Timbers prevent Dallas from getting more attacks in those opportunities, I'm, I'm just not sure if they, they get that 1-0 win. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Jamie. I agree with what Coach Savarese said about, you know, a lot of times when the team was generating those high turnovers, there would just be like one or two passes that were either not good or you're just kind of like, oh, that was a little bit selfish or... Why did you try to do that kind of situations? And they could have generated more chances. But, you know, in my mind, I'm going back to three or four years ago because I think the one thing you can say about Chara from the position he's at, which is one you don't expect a lot of goals to be scored, is that he he doesn't really create dangerous chances with his passes. He's more apt to play the safe pass. We can see that in his pass percentage each year and his low assist numbers. He's more apt to play the safe pass to kick it wide and, and then try to make the run into the middle of the box to get on the cross. And I mean, I hate to bring this up, but it is, I think it is true when he and Darlington Nagby were together. It was weird having two players like that in the same team because it would almost get to where, come on, somebody take a chance and you would have to rely on Diego Valeri. Diego Valeri would end up with this really low passing percentage at the end of the year because he's the only person in the team that's willing to try a through ball that might be intercepted. That's really the only thing about Shiraz game that I would say, I kind of wish he would take more pass chances with some of his passes every single other thing element of his game is just i think to me stellar and 
you know, just to repeat ourselves, we've talked about this for the last 10 minutes. It was all on display on Sunday. Yeah. Another player that has been stellar uh, is Brian Fernandez. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Stop, stop. Let's, let's acknowledge how good your segues are getting here. That was <laughs> well, we, don't, re- we, we don't have to acknowledge it every time. <laughs> well, I, I only have one okay. or two more shows here, okay. so I want to I stop and just acknowledge that right. I, I, don't, I don't know if good or bad is the way to describe them, but I'm envious of these seamless transitions right. that you are crafting here. <laughs> I mean, you are as good in transition as Diego Chara. Well, that is just not true, but okay. <laughs> but okay, let's get let's talk about Brian Fernandez a little bit because I mean, you, we can go down the list of records and, and crazy things that he's been able to do since he he joined the Timbers in May. He he did set um, a record becoming the first player in MLS history to score in five consecutive MLS regular season games to open his MLS career. Um, he now has nine goals in seven uh, games for the Timbers. He scored in every game. That's across all competitions. He scored in every game that he's been a Timber. Uh, and six goals in five MLS appearances. Why is he so good <laughs> at scoring <laughs> goals? Why, why has he been so successful in MLS so far? Yeah, it's obvious that he is a great talent with great technical ability, with a tremendous work rate and huge desire. I think those things go without being said at this point because we've watched this guy for a month and a half and everybody feels like they know exactly what he is. But from the opposing coach's point of view, you also can't stop him. So I think that is actually a testament to the team around him. Uh, We see Diego Valeri, Sebastian Blanco, Jeremy Abobasi, Christian Paredes all feeding off of Fernandez's energy, but also being complementary parts. They're not getting in Fernandez's way. They're not trying to take touches from him. They're not trying to. They're not getting jealous about the number of chances that he's taking, or quite frankly, some of the healthy selfishness that he has in trying to create chances for himself. So I go back to January or even December, Jamie, when in mid-December we were in the media conference room here at Providence Park, and from left to right there was Ned Grabavoy, Gavin Wilkinson, Giovanni Savarese on the dais. And Wilkinson is outlining this timeline for getting a new attacking player in. And he kind of hints like, you know, this could extend into summer. We're not going to rush this. But between December and March, there was a lot of angst about not getting somebody in. And we rightfully, a lot of times on the show, talked about, well, do they need to have somebody in from day one? The time that the team took to identify and get Fernandez, we couldn't have seen this ahead of time. But the way it has played out, he's a perfect fit. Between his attitude, the we talked about the pressing. I talked about the pressing a minute ago, what he does to motivate that, to the fact that he can be a goal scorer without being a ball-dominant player. Right now, he just looks like a perfect fit for the attributes that the team already had. So in addition to how good he is, I think the Timbers have done a really good job of finding somebody who just fits with the team. And you know, maybe we'll be saying something different two months from now if Brian goes uh, two months with only two goals. But right now, it just looks like an incredible acquisition. Yeah, I, I think this is something you touched on there that we haven't spent a ton of time talking about is just how quickly that chemistry has, has grown with him and the players around him. I, I mean, that's not easy to do, to bring a player in and not only have him immediately score goals, but have sort of his connections with his teammates, his ability to read what other teammates are doing. I, I mean, there was a lot of... Uh, what happened on the goal yesterday, 
it had to do with a lot of being able to read each other. I mean, Chara had to know that if that his dummy was going to be effective to have whoever was streaking towards the back post, which he probably assumed was Fernandez. Sebastian Blanco obviously sending the cross in and either seeing if it goes to Chara going through. But that takes some chemistry to know to make those runs, that know that this player is going to potentially play in this way, that these are the two options. Um, and obviously soccer players train this day in, day out, but, but it does take time to build that kind of chemistry. And it doesn't feel like... We, there's been games where we're saying, oh, they're making these passes and they're not panning out because they just don't know each other well enough. It, it's come together pretty seamlessly. I think that has a lot to do with Brian Fernandez's personality. He's a very, I don't want to say simple because he's not a simple guy, but he's a very focused guy. There's no question as to his motivations. And even people in the stands who have only seen him play live two or three times, it's very clear what his motivations are. And so when you see him after he scores a goal and he's already talking to his teammates about something he saw five minutes ago about how they could have played it differently, he's not focused on the one goal. He's focused on the collection of goals that he expects himself to to have. And that attitude has been in place since the moment he arrived at the training complex in Beaverton. So I think it ties into what you're saying about chemistry. If you have somebody whose motivations are unclear or maybe is somebody that has a lot of levels on which they want to operate, it becomes more difficult to form that chemistry. When you have somebody who's direct, who's so focused, and he's so focused on some obvious thing, well, it becomes pretty obvious what you need to do to play into his game. I mean, in fairness, I didn't know this about Brian Fernandez when he was being acquired. I didn't hear anything about, oh, the thing about Fernandez is he only thinks about one thing. But here, when you've got the Valeris and Chiraz and Blancos, Blancos to think about the other things... Getting a guy that's going to be just like, yeah, great, just give me the ball, score. It's fit so well. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Um, not able. That's what that's what his uh, name said on Twitter. Not able says, if he keeps up this pace, could Fernandez be a legit MVP uh, contender in MLS? I I don't think he's going to keep up this pace. So I, I I don't know if if the phrasing of that is exactly how I want to put this, but. Do you think that he could be an MLS MVP contender this year? And at this point, how many goals do you think he's going to end up with? Yeah, I think he would have to maintain this pace in order to be a legit MVP contender because you've got the best player on the league playing for potentially the best team in MLS history down at LAFC. So Carlos Vela is on a, at a very high bar right now. Uh, so you look at his numbers. I mean, Vela's numbers aren't as far as pace, as far as goals way better assist rate than Brian Fernandez. I mean, he's having a better statistical year than even Brian Fernandez. The number that I keep in my mind regarding where I kind of think or would predict Brian Fernandez ends up this year as far as goals is 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8 goals per 90 minutes. And he's way above that right now, way above that. But you would expect, like you just hinted at, some regression. And I think if if the Timbers got to the end of the year and he made 24 starts and ended up with about 18 or 19 goals... That would be a hugely successful year, right? Like just to have an 18 or 19 goal scorer would be incredible. But he's well above that pace right now. You would still want him to be scoring at, you know, better than a goal every other game pace once he settles in. So 0.8 to me, given how fast he started, is the number that I keep in mind. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I, I think that if he ends up with around 20 goals, which it would be incredible that he will be an MVP contender. I don't 
no, and I, I don't think that he would likely beat Vela out um, just because of the start that, that Carlos Vela has had and where he's at. I mean, I think it would be very hard to look at a season and with Fernandez coming in late, even if he reaches that mark and assume that Vela, Vela would have to really change what he's doing because he's also on a crazy pace. But I think in terms of a contender, yeah, if he continues on this pace or, or even close to this pace, I think he could be in that conversation in terms of goals. I, I though I think, man, if he gets 18, 19, 20 goals, that's really that he's coming really close to keeping up with the pace he's on right now, which I just, I still don't know if that's yeah. going to be sustainable, especially the Timbers have um, 18 more games left this season. They have some really packed schedules. He's not going to play all of those games. We, we saw him sit in the Montreal game this week. I still think maybe 15 goals, 16 goals um, is a mark that I would point to maybe, but yeah, it's, it's hard to tell because so far, yeah, every time I'm saying there, there has to be a regression, there's going to be a regression. We haven't seen it yet. <laughs> no, that, that number definitely sounds more reasonable than mine once you start mentioning the fact that there are only X amount of games left. As the Timbers are succeeding in Open Cup, the need to balance people's workloads becomes a more prominent theme of the season and I think just look if somebody would have told you at the beginning of the May that Brian Fernandez is going to come in and score even 12 or 13 goals given that he missed the first two months of the season you would say wow that's a really good acquisition so even I was about to say even if he ends up there we have to consider this successful but at this point if he only ended up with 12 goals that means he only scored six the rest of the way so that would be that'd be kind of too much of a dip so I mean I guess we'll just wait and see I also think that teams are starting to adjust like we saw it a little bit in the Houston game, how they were using some creative tactics to slow down play. I think Dallas did that a little bit too. We saw some people. Uh, I, I don't want to say their feet weren't stomped on, but they were definitely <laughs> taking time to explore the worst case scenario from that contact. And I think just in general, Dallas tried to slow down the game, and that's what a team should do when they come into Providence Park to face a team like this. But slowly but surely, I think you're going to see more teams across the league start to pick up one or two tricks from the previous game and eventually come come up with a complete plan with how to combat the Timbers. At that point, Brian Fernandez's scoring will slow down, and at that point, it'll be incumbent upon the Timbers to come up with a new solution. But Jamie, uh, we already talked about Diego Char a little bit. We talked about Brian Fernandez. Let's talk about another Timber that somebody wanted to bring up. Mark asked a question of us. Marvin Luria completely changed the game when he came in, in his opinion. How do we fit him into the starting lineup, or do you disagree? And I guess by that, he's asking, do you think that Loria shouldn't be in the starting lineup? I I, I disagree with the premise. I, I think that Loria came in and changed the game. I, I think the game in the second half, um, as our resting point, it wasn't what the Timbers wanted it to be. Um, they, they weren't on a point where they were being able to really go on the attack or, or put the game to bed with the second goal. It, it really felt like the momentum had shift. Um, to, to Dallas's favor. So I, I don't know if you agree or disagree on that, but in terms of Loria, I, I mean, I think this is probably the position he's going to be in for right now, which is, which is compared to where he was a few weeks ago, um, a, a really good spot for him to be in. To get him on the field, they're going to have to take Jeremy Abobasi off. It's as simple as that. You take Jeremy Abobasi off. Jeremy Abobasi is not a wide player by nature. It, it makes it would make sense to maybe get a, a player like Loria who is a wide player on the field over him. But I don't see that happening immediately. 
Bobasie scored a really good goal against Houston. His scoring rate hasn't been tremendous. That could change. I think it's going to be an open competition, but I don't think Loria at this point with the two starts he's had is going to break through right now. Well, I think let me talk about Jeremy Obobese first, mostly because I generally agree with everything you said. So I just want to add something and not just repeat it. There are a couple things tactically that Jeremy Obobese is providing that can't be replaced by anybody else on the roster. First, you see a lot of times that the Timbers are now going directly to Jeremy Obobese when he is getting forward from a wide position. And what that does, it provides a second point of reference for the defense to be wary of and not just be able to try to compact the midfield and push the Timbers attack higher and get Brian Fernandez away from goal. The threat of being able to play Jeremy Obobese over the defense into the space behind and have a number nine's capability of winning and holding up that ball is significant. Secondly, when you see the Timbers set up in their attacking shape in the other team's final third, you generally see Sebastian Blanco, not always, but you generally see Sebastian Blanco comb over to one side, they'll overload one side, and either Brian Fernandez is there or Brian Fernandez is very wide on the other side in a position to take advantage of that space or attack the weak post. The reason Brian Fernandez can do that is because Jeremy Obobese comes in and holds the central defenders accountable as the number nine. So even though he is not starting as the number nine and he's not playing as a number nine either defensively or in the transition phase in the middle of the field, Jeremy Obobese provides those number nine qualities that Marvin Luria just can't. And they're opening up the options for everybody else. I would say this about Marvin Luria, though. I'm kind of more with you, Jamie. I don't think he changed the game, but I did think he did some very obviously positive things. I would say he's done enough positive things where he is the next attacker in line at this point. And because of his positional versatility, he can play either a 7, a 10, or an 11. He's in position to get any start whenever any of Fernandez, Valeri, Blanco, or Bobasi go down. Or just need a rest. So I think it's entirely possible that Loria gets seven or eight starts over the course of the rest of the season. Maybe he only gets four or five. But you go through the scenarios, and any time any one of those guys needs a rest, Marvin Loria becomes the next person off the bench. So I think we're very close to the days where Marvin Loria's time at T2 is done. And we've also solved the question of whether, okay, is it going to be, you know, going way into the past here, is it going to be Lucas Milano or Dyron Espria or Tomas Konechny? Who's, who's the reliable attacking option? Marvin Luria is the reliable attacking option off the bench. And speaking of the starts that Marvin Luria is, is going to potentially get, I think those starts are going to potentially come in the next 15 days, at least some of them. The Timbers will be playing five games in, in the next 15 games, uh, 15 days, starting Sunday at New York City FC. Let's talk a little bit about that game and, and sort of how they not only approach this game at NYCFC, but what that means for sort of the stretch going forward. And I think even a more difficult schedule than they just went through. Yeah. Jamie, you and I talked about this, I feel like, at length on last week's late week podcast and how looking back on how the Timbers managed the week, it probably wasn't what you and I would have predicted before the Open Cup game against the Galaxy. But in hindsight, it made total sense. And I feel like we we should probably learn our lesson from that and just kind of say... We don't know how Giovanni Savarese and his staff are going to approach this stretch, but we're probably going to have to look at the stretch in a holistic way and not at any one game's decisions. Now, that being said, I'm more than willing to offer how I would manage it from my personal point of view. I would, I would play a rotated team at NYCFC. I would leave my veterans on the West Coast 
I would travel them and play a full team in Open Cup against LAFC. We are at that point of Open Cup where three wins get you into Champions League. It gets you into it gets you a, a trophy. But mostly, I just wouldn't want to be subjecting the same veterans I didn't want to subject to the travel and the two days loss of training and the game away from home. The same veterans that I didn't want to subject that to in Montreal, I wouldn't want to do it in New York City FC. It's an Eastern Conference team. Uh, the, the leverage on those points is less when you're thinking about your playoff race. I would keep the veterans at home. I would play a full-strength team at LAFC, and I would play a full-strength team to whatever extent they can respond in those two days or recover in those days. I would play a full-strength team at home against Colorado. What would you do? See, I I would definitely rotate the lineup for either NYCFC or LAFC. Um, Either the U.S. Open Cup game, they either have to, as Matt asked, whether they're going to punt the U.S. Open Cup game, they either have to do that or they have to, to some degree, do that with NYCFC. The problem for me in terms of thinking about doing what you just said is that, and they have an extra day here maybe, um, so it might not be as difficult of a stretch, but if they were, for, to, for example, to play rotated lineup at New York on Sunday, then play full strength Wednesday against LAFC, full strength Saturday against Colorado, then you would think they'd want to play full strength Thursday at Orlando yeah. And that they also might want to play full strength that next Sunday against Seattle. And they can't do that. Yeah, I think they would rotate against Orlando. And it's it's the same kind of logic. These Even, East Coast these East Coast trips in the middle of the week are just they're killer. But it's not an East Coast trip. That's a home game. That's where I think the change is. They oh, that, yeah. that is a difficult situation because yes, it's an it's an Eastern Conference team. You don't want to go up to Seattle and put a completely rotated lineup against a Western Conference opponent and your rival that weekend after, but that's a home game and a winnable home game. You look at that Colorado yeah. and Orlando game, if those aren't six points at home, the, the Timbers are going to feel like they've done something wrong. And yeah. so I think that really complicates it starting with that LAFC game because if you don't rest this week, then that makes the next week that much harder. Yeah, possibly. You know, Maybe I should like not go too much on a limb here because clearly me forgetting that that Orlando game was even at home. I kind of don't know what I'm talking about at this point, (laughs) but just, you know, I guess the travel thing is such a big deal, just losing those days to travel. So when you're talking about kind of in the abstract of not losing days to travel next week, even though you do have a day, you're going up to Seattle. Obviously that's a shorter trip and you have a later in the week game on Thursday because of whatever, the schedule gods wanted it that way. Um, the fact that it's at home to me changes everything. So I could completely see them maybe not fully rotating for those Colorado through Seattle games, but maybe picking their spots where Diego Flary only plays 30 minutes off the bench or um, you rotate Brian Fernandez out where he only plays 30 minutes off the bench. Doing that instead of a full rotation. But yeah, I don't know, Jamie. I, I think the one thing, thinking back to these, what has it been now? five open cup games that Giovanni Savarese has been in charge in of with the Timbers. The weakest team that he played was against San Jose to start the competition last year. And that team still won. I, yeah. I just, I, we haven't seen Giovanni Savarese punt an open cup game yet, even though he has punted regular season games. Yeah. I, I mean, I sort of expect that we're going to see a highly rotated lineup either at NYCFC or LAFC, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is at NYFC because of how far that travel is. And then in the three games after that, the Colorado, Orlando, Seattle, we're going to see 
rotations in every game without fully rotating in any of them. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. I mean, after you kind of walked me through what that next week's stretch is going to be, that makes perfect sense where you find either space to rest one or two guys or you just start monitoring the minutes a little bit. But yeah, I think the one... Boy, the only times we've seen Giovanni Savarese absolutely punt games were or have been road trips to Eastern time zone games. So... And regular season, too, for that matter. Um, but, Jamie, the opponent this Sunday, New York City FC, uh, very memorable game here at Providence Park last year where Giovanni Savarese kind of had a breakthrough win against the then-undefeated New York City FC team, which at the time was being ma- managed by Patrick Vieira. They were the best team in the league at that time, and then uh, Giovanni Savarese went to a very unique formation for that game, ended up hitting them on the counter a couple times. Great win for the Timbers. Kind of a really a breakthrough win for the Giovanni Savarese era. Really, that was probably the first game that people started to gain some confidence in him. Totally different team now in New York. Uh, They have a different coach. Dami Terran took over for uh, Patrick Vieira in the middle of last year. They've lost David Villa. Uh, They've lost Yangel Herrera, who is uh, no longer with the team. And all of a sudden, this is a team that has been having a lot of trouble scoring goals this year. In general, Jamie, what do you think about this matchup? Yeah, I I mean, I think that this is this New York City FC team is not nearly as good as it was last year. I, I do think that they're having trouble scoring goals. I think I think we're likely to see at least some rotations in this game, if not a completely rotated lineup. And I, I think the keys for the Timbers are just going to be to stay organized on defense um, and try to take advantage of the fact that this isn't the most prolific attacking team. And hope to maybe get a, a goal, um, just find pick and choose their moments, or just get a, maybe a scoreless draw on the road. Yeah. Um, I am not sure how it's going to pan out <laughs> or how it's going to what's going to happen. Because it really, I think, is going to depend to some degree on whether they can do that based on the lineup. But mm-hmm. given the travel, given that that field is not it's narrow, it's not the easiest place to play. Um, I, I think this is one of the games that's just about being organized and, and trying to hope for maybe a scoreless draw or, or getting lucky and, and finding maybe a one zero win or something like that. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, um, regarding New York City FC, um, they have had a breakthrough over the last couple of months. They've had this four, Brazilian forward, Bear come in. He scored six goals in 10 games. And I guess for me, he has solved the team's goal scoring problems, but I just haven't got, I haven't gotten a feeling that this is going to be a permanent thing for them. And The reason I'm bringing this up is because whether you think that they have goal-scoring problems probably comes down to whether you think Hebert's start is real. If you think it's real, okay, they've replaced David Villa. They still have a very similar style. Because of that style, they're a pretty good team when it comes to goal prevention. Okay, this is a team that could be one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. I'm still a bit open-minded about that. I still need to see more than the like 10, 11 games that he has played so far. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite here and make it seem like, oh, I'm so convinced by Brian Fernandez and I'm not convinced by Aber. It really is just a matter of I don't get to watch New York City as much as I get to watch Portland or to the detail I get to watch Portland. And from a, the distance of half a country away, I still think New York City FC, even though they are getting a pronounced uptick in goals over Aber's time in the lineup, I still think that they're in kind of prove it mode to me. Yeah. I- I, I think it'll be interesting. I, I do think, regardless, the Timbers, because of the travel and the rotated lineup and things like that, this it has to be one of those games that the Timbers don't necessarily bunker in, but 
are definitely trying to play, trying to make sure they're staying organized and focused more on that than having a prolific dominant attack. Yeah. Uh, I, and try to be in New York yeah, that way. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I don't know if Giovanni Savarese is going to do this, but I would. I would wonder if he wanted to play maybe instead of kind of two pure central midfielders as he's been doing lately with the four two three one and Shara and Paredes, try to get a Renzo Zambrano in there also. Try to get an Andres Flores in there so you actually have three people in the middle of that tight uh, field where you're going to be battling with the Alex Rings of the world and really try to control the park that way. Not only just because of the matchup issues, but that's a good way to kind of... Like you're kind of saying, try to grind out a victory in this one. So we'll have to wait and see. But just in general, Jamie, I think we're identifying a lot of questions about this game from who the t- who the Timbers are going to select to how they're going to play to whether New York City is the team we saw in the first two months of the year or the second two months of the year. Uh, they've got some great players, Maxi Morales, Alex Ring. These are really high caliber players. And uh, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to wait till our predictions to see what you think is going to come out of this one. Yeah, and I'm looking just kind of at where they're scoring goals, and they certainly have been scoring more at home uh, now that I look back at at how they've been doing. Um, Mm. So we'll see. (laughs) This is going to be an interesting one to see how it plays out because I don't. It's hard to predict the lineup. It's hard to predict exactly because if you can't predict the lineup, it's hard to predict kind of exactly uh, what kind of strategy is going to be used and what kind of New York City team you're going to see. But obviously, they are better at home. Yeah. Well, speaking of better at home, that's how the Portland Thorns have been over the years. And to to this point of the season, they've yet to lose at home. But they've also only played a couple of games at home this season. And this weekend in Houston, continued their long stretch of spending more time away from Providence Park at home than at home. Uh, Jamie, in this game, you predicted a one to nothing loss. And you were actually on target for 70 minutes yeah. in this one. Looked really good. The Thorns ended up winning two to one. I predicted an Anna Sinergorchevich score. She didn't play. She was on the bench uh, dealing with an ailment. We'll have to circle back on that one when we talk to Mark Parsons this week. But let's circle back on the game itself right now. Jamie, it was not even a game of two halves. It was a game of... Well, looks like Houston's going to get this one until the last 20 minutes of it. What did you think of the whole thing? Yeah, maybe uh, the Thorns were like what Dallas almost was to the Timbers this weekend. Um, yeah, it, I think you could tell the excitement that Mark Parsons has uh, based on his post-game interviews coming out of this game. Houston has been a tough place to play. It is a tough place to play. And to be able to come back on the road and show that kind of fight – I, I think is really impressive from the Thorns. They get another Mitch Purse goal. That seems to be just kind of what Brian Fernandez is to the, the Timbers right now. <laughs> um, but they get a, They also get Tyler Lucy, uh, which we can get to in a minute. Tyler Lucy's able to, you know, hasn't been, I, I think that's her first goal of the season, hasn't been able mm. to really get on the board, is able to come up big. It's, I, I think it's an impressive win from the Thorns. Maybe not how they wanted the 90 minutes of that game to play out, but be able to get all, go on the road and go down a goal and come back and get two goals to get a win uh, to jump into first place. They have to be pretty happy about that. I completely agree. Uh, I think we saw that Houston, to me, they're a team that doesn't have a lot of weaknesses. I question their ceiling, but you kind of go player for player. Even during this World Cup period, they've got quality players at all positions. They're not perfect players. I think we saw from their goalkeeper on the first goal, they're clearly not perfect players. But it's a tough team, and it's in a tough environment, and it's a, it's a tough trip in general for teams to go down there into you know, southeast Texas and deal with the conditions. We had to deal with the conditions on Saturday as the game was delayed for 90 minutes, and um, 
you know, this is two wins in a row now that Tim, the Timbers, the Thorns have gotten down there. And I think that's something that the whole team should take a lot of pride in. But, you know, for the first 70 minutes of the game, I guess I shouldn't say for the first 70 minutes. The start of the game, I thought the Thorns were moving the ball really well and generally dictating how the game was being played. And then once Houston got a, a hold on the game, there were some things that were, I think, a little bit worrisome to me. Specifically, the set piece defending, I thought was probably the worst that we've seen from the Thorns this year. They should have given up a goal early where Amber Brooks had a chance at the far post on a corner kick. They did give up a goal in the second half where the set piece defending was pretty bad. And it's just not something I'm used to seeing from the Thorns, Jamie. I mean, they usually are the bigger team. They usually are a team that's not afraid to be aggressive, to attack those balls on set pieces. I just didn't see anybody actually attacking these balls. I saw a lot of people uh, at the point of confrontation on these crosses, still on the ground, not actually even elevating for it. And I don't know if that was like a matter of the conditions being a little bit oppressive or maybe the team was tired from travel, but I really thought that by the time Houston actually scored on a set piece in the second half, they could have had two goals before that on set pieces. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it wasn't... <laughs> for kind of how you split it into half. It wasn't the best game from the Thorns when you look at the first half, when you look at up until the Houston's goal. Um, but for me, I just take more of a positive out of the response given where it was being played. And Houston is, is they might not have the ceiling uh, of some of these better teams in the league, but they are much better, I, I think, than they have been in previous years. I, I mean, I, I think previously I've not thought very highly of Houston, I think that this season they've shown something. Um, so I'm coming out of this feeling a lot more positive uh, about the performance, despite there being similar with the Timbers, I, I think. You know, you kind of have to look back at the video of this one and say, okay, we found a way to get the win. Now let's talk about these specific moments. Let's talk about the set piece defending and why that went wrong and how it can be better going forward. That's a great reset, Jamie, because once we get that set piece stuff out of the way, I feel like there's only positives to talk about. And much like with the Timbers, I kind of want to start with the individual performances, specifically from the central midfielders. There's been a question all year about where Dagny Bringer's daughter is going to fit in. Uh, I think when we saw early in the year when she was starting with Lindsay Horan, the balance wasn't right. It kind of looked like you had two eights in the middle and nobody was really sitting or spaces were being left exposed because the familiarity wasn't there between the two of them. Now, in a game where you came into it and you and I have talked about the need for people like Sooner Gorchevich and Brynja Sauter to step up in the goal-scoring column during this stretch, in a game where you saw the lineup and saw her and Gabby Seiler in the middle and maybe thought that Brynja Sauter was going to get forward a little bit more, she was really the six most of the time. And I thought she had a couple of just great reads, great reads in that position. A couple of times where she was able to keep the ball in the attacking third, uh, read the play, meet... Houston players, right when they were turning upfield, win the ball, get the team going the other way. I thought it was great. I thought her distribution was great. And it, for the first time this year, I really looked at her and said, if she plays like that, that's the person that should be partnering Lindsey Horan when Lindsey Horan comes back. Which is kind of, it's kind of sucks for Gabby Seiler because I thought Gabby Seiler might have been the best player on the field. But Gabby Seiler's not a six. I don't see her projecting as playing a six. She played a really good eight on Saturday. She could play in defense. She could play at fullback. But when you start charting out the 11 when all the World Cup players are back, 
the biggest questions for me are who starts at right wing where I see like this three-player race now between Midge Purse, Haley Rosso, and Anna Marina Sertogorcevic, and then who starts at the six between Dagny Brignard starter and who else now that Angela Salem is hurt? Celeste Bure maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, where do you kind of put Celeste at this point? It, it it seems like from the beginning of the year to now, her place in the depth chart, her stock has certainly, it seems like, fallen. Um, but she was that player uh, that was playing that role last year and had earned that, that spot. That's a great question. I feel like I think about that question almost every practice and every game for the Thorns. And I feel like, I feel like I'm not being honest with myself because... I think we all, from seeing Celeste Bure come in here as an undrafted rookie and working her way to where she won back that number six role last year when for a while it looked like Mark Parsons wanted to try Andresina and Lindsay Horan together. You really felt like Celeste Bure between that and all the time she was putting in in Australia was reaching a level to where you almost felt the achievement with her. So to see her lose her starting job this year... I think I was just kind of in the space of cognitive denial for a long time because you just don't want to see that happen to somebody who's put so much into improving themselves. But the simple fact is she's not a starter right now, and we have to yeah. deal with why. And I think there are two, two ways we can look at this. Either she's been bypassed by better players, which there's no shame in not being as good as Angela Salem or Dagny Brynja's daughter, or she has somehow slipped. And I think where the lie comes into my head, Jamie, is that I was in denial of that second one. I think I need to look at it more but we mean, may need to acknowledge that Celeste Bure this year isn't as good as Celeste Bure last year. And we need to figure out why that is because it could become a very important question when we're trying to assess the decisions Mark Parsons makes over the last half of the season. Why is why is Dagny Brogner's starter continue to play a six if she isn't taking to that spot? Why isn't Celeste Bure playing more? I feel like I don't have answers to those questions. And to be quite honest with you, I think I don't have answers to those questions because I haven't done a good job of answer of asking those questions of myself. Yeah, and I, I think we got to talk to Mark more about this, especially as these questions of the lineup become more and more um, important as players come back from the World Cup. I, I think, that as you mentioned her right there, but Andre Senia is also a question. Does she fit in? We, we've talked a lot. Does she yeah. even fit into this team when this team is fully available. Um, but that is sort of the position that you put her on the field based on what other options you have. It didn't really work when that's what it was last year. Um, but they, Thorns clearly brought her back for one reason or another. Uh, she was definitely the player, I think, the offseason we were talking about. Oh, I'm not sure if she makes sense on this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are a lot of positional questions when, when you start looking at players coming back in. Yeah, I mean, and Andrew Senior also needs to be mentioned in that right wing scenario too, because yeah. that's where she, she started playing more wide once the her and Horan pairing in central midfield wasn't working last year. Now you think about right wing, we there are four players there that we've already talked about. All of them are international caliber players, even though Mitch Purse hasn't played international yet. She's been called into the national team a couple of times. Serena Gorcevic, Rasso, Andrew Senior. When you start looking at a potential bench for the Thorns once everybody's back. You're probably not going to have more than two or three attacking options on that bench. So let's not call Andresinia an attacking option. Let's consider a midfielder for this exercise. You're going to have at least two of Purse, Rasso, Cernogorshevich on the bench. Well, who are some players that we haven't even mentioned here yet? Tyler, Lucy, Simone, Charlie. Somebody's getting squeezed out of this 18, if not both of them. It's, I, you, you like to say, oh, these are good problems to have. 
But in a, the world of women's soccer, where your rosters are usually only 20 players, they're bigger this year because of the World Cup allotment. If you're not making 18s, you're really close to not being on the team. Like the Thorns have a numbers crunch at this point. And it's been caused by Simone Charlie stepping up. It's been caused by Mitch Purse stepping up to where she's competing for a starting spot at this point. But the same kind of decisions, decisions that led to Ifioma Onumanu landing in Seattle and Mallory Weber landing in Utah, the Thorns come this point next year might have had to make another round of those decisions. So it really makes you start wondering what assets on the Thorns do Gavin Wilkinson and Mark Parsons have to look to almost cash in on at this point or else risk losing people like Simone Charlie and Tyler Lucy just from having to manage their roster. You mentioned Midge Purse specifically there in, in sort of when you're talking about that right wing position. And so I want to bring up this point. Have we, at this point, would you say that Midge Purse is a forward? It, the conversation is where she fits in the depth chart as a forward, or do we have the, still have that conversation of outside back? I mean, Jamie, it's like you were in my head this weekend. These are all the questions I'm asking myself because it's very clear to me that Mitch Purse is a better attacking player than a defending player. And that's nothing against Mitch Purse, the wingback or the fullback, but it's very clear the only reason she is playing there is just to get her into a lineup of talented players. So when you're looking at it ter- in terms of player development or what, you, what the long game is on Mitch Purse, what purpose does it, one... What does it serve her to play in those positions? And two, does it serve to continue, well, to potentially give her playing time over an Ellie Carpenter or an Elizabeth Ball in those positions? Because Elizabeth Ball, too, is somebody that needs to be cultivated. Well, I so mean, for, ask, ask Crystal Dunn about that, but continue. Right, right. Um, again, jumping into my head on Crystal Dunn because I was going to say something with her regarding Celeste Bure. That's in the past at this point. Missed opportunity. Either way, even if you want to say, okay, Midge Purse is so good, we have to get her into the team. You're doing it at the expense of two other young players, not just young players, younger players that you need to develop. So for me, whether you think in another situation it'd be good to force Midge Purse in at fullback, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the Thorns to do that. Now this gets in the situation where you talk about asset management. The Thorns have too many starting caliber players for the spots that they have. And it's going to risk pushing people off the back of the roster that don't have trade value. So at what point do you start going, this person has trade value. They are a little bit better than the next person on the depth chart. But that other person on the depth chart, I can't get anything for. At what point do, do, the, do the Thorns have to start wondering if that's the solution to clear up the logjam at right wing? I mean, I think that's more going to be an end-of-the-season question than an end-of-the-season yeah. question. I, I think they are fine in terms of roster spots for this year, but I absolutely agree with you that I think there's going to have to be made some tough moves this offseason because there are those jams, and maybe there's other positions they could better use those resources for, and there's no reason uh, of holding on to an asset, even if you like that person and their great locker room presence and, and things like that. If you're could better use that asset, uh, better you could trade that asset and better use uh, the financial gain and the free roster spot elsewhere. Yeah, that was a good reset on your part because it doesn't really be who the Thorns right now, particularly now that they're in first place and everything is going well. All the trophies are in view for this season. It doesn't behoove them to start getting into asset management mode before the winter. So this winter, there's going to be some tough decisions and we'll have to wait and see like some of these players coming off the world cup, maybe exploring other options in the world too. So maybe some decisions will be made for them. Uh, but some of the players that are going to be affected by it were 
playing prominent roles on Saturday. Uh, per Michael, who asked a question on Twitter, he wants to talk about one of them. He asks, how happy is Richard Farley that Tyler Lucy scored? How happy are you? We've talked about this before. <laughs> I do this weird thing where I invest in some players, uh, both on the timber side or more mostly the T2 side and the thorns, and I just kind of go all in on them. So like... The same way I was super happy when Simone Charlie started to excel because I had put like all this intellectual capital into Simone Charlie. The same thing with Tyler Lucy. Now, I will say this. I feel like a little bit of a schmuck about this because why did I stop predicting Tyler Lucy would score goals? I went back on this Anna Cernogorcevic train right at the moment Tyler Lucy comes in and not only scores a goal but has an <laughs> assist. Like... Have a little faith, Richard. If you're going to stand for these people, stand till the end. And so, Michael, I'm very happy, but I also think I should be called out for being disloyal. Because when things really got to the point where I had to stand up for Tyler Lucy or sit down, I sat down. Yeah, it's it's. I saw what your prediction was this week, and I, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit. Of all weeks, not to not to predict Tyler Lucy scoring. I'm I'm just such a moron. But at the same time, <laughs> like you said at the beginning of the show, I've been having really good luck with my predictions. So to have this one not only be wrong, but wrong in a way that kind of blew up in my face, I mean, the scales are evening out. So another players that did return to this game, and I want to sort of use this to jump into the preview for Friday's game against the rain, but Ellie Carpenter was back, Andresinha was back, um, sort of what do you think of their performances there? And then Donna asks, will the other Aussies be back? Uh, so Ford and Rasso, as well as Sinclair uh, for this upcoming game uh, on Friday against the rain. Well, let's deal with Donna's question first, because there's not much to say about this. They're back in training this week. Their availability for Friday's game, based on what we saw from Andresinha's return specifically, because she returned early last week and ended up starting, you would assume that health permitting, they're going to be fully available for Friday's game. Don't take that as gospel because I haven't heard that from Mark Parsons, but based on what we saw last week with the integration of Andresinha, I think that's a reasonable expectation for people to have right now. Now, regarding the integration of Andresinha, amongst the many hilarious things from this week's broadcast, which was right there with Charlie Davies' performance in the Timbers Open Cup game in Seattle, was... The foresight, you can say, I don't even want to say foresight because I don't think Andresinha was as good as they predicted, but they basically decided in the second minute of the game that Andresinha was going to be the deciding factor of this game, and they played into that the whole time. I thought Andresinha was fine. I think she did a good job of maintaining possession. She didn't really create that many chances for herself or others. I think that was a product of how the game played out. I thought she was fine. I thought she... She brought something different to that number 10 role than we usually see from Anna Maria Cernogorcevic. But I also think some of the defensive stability that Cernogorcevic provided there was missing on Saturday. As far as Carpenter, I, I think she was kind of a net neutral. I, don't, I can't think of anything that stood out either way from her 45 minutes. Um, and me, I think we should also mention Emily Menges in here too because she returned to the team after missing how many games did she miss? Two or three? Two? I, I don't yeah, remember either. Back. Yeah, I didn't look this up before, but she was back in the team. She played 45 minutes, so it was good to see her there. But, Jamie, what did you think of Carpenter and Andrew Senior's performances? Yeah, I, I kind of am on that side where it was both sort of fine. There were moments. Um, but I, I, I would have I, – I think it is tough to come back. Obviously, they're in form, but they are coming back all the way from France, and this is their first week back. Um, I don't think it's necessarily surprising to see neither of them come in and make such an immediate impact. I, I do think their takes – 
a little bit of time to reintegrate players after a World Cup. Um, but I, I think it's good to see that they were able to come back so quickly. I, I was surprised leading into that game. I, I sort of assumed that even though they would be back, they probably wouldn't play just because they were just getting back. Um, as you said, it, it's clear that if players are getting back this week, they they can potentially play on the weekend. I, I mean, they are in form. Uh, and I just ex- sort of expected the reintegration process to take longer. Yes, same. When I saw Andrew Senior here last week, I didn't expect her to play. And maybe she doesn't play if, uh, if Anna Sernogorcevich doesn't end up with an injury, but who knows, too. That, again, we have to ask Mark Parsons about that decision-making process. Um, but I think another thing that was evident in talking to Mark Parsons after the game is the way the team is playing right now, their playing style, it becomes very difficult to take this team on the road and expect them to be in a good place come the 90th minute of the game. Again, he was talking about the team in the same terms that he talked about them after North Carolina, about how they were just dead tired. And you saw at the end of the game on Saturday where Danny Brunier started spent some time at the number nine, and then Kelly Hubley spent some time at the number nine. And those were pure preservation tactics. Like The team was dead tired, so they were tra- having to put cramping people in positions where they were le- least needed. Just getting players back who can provide some minutes at this point is a big help. The fact that those players are world-class caliber players that are coming back from the World Cup, I don't want to say it's an added bonus, but it is a bonus nonetheless. Um, Jamie, let's talk about Friday's game. It'll be the first time that Rain FC comes to Providence Park without us having to call them Seattle Rain FC. They are now a team that's based out of Tacoma. So you bring up a great question in regards to this. How much of a how much of a rivalry is this really? Because this isn't this isn't Seattle Portland anymore. It's more like you know if <laughs> like if the if Portland had moved to Salem, maybe that's a little bit too far. But if they moved to if they had moved to Salem, I mean, this is more than just moving to Beaverton. Tacoma is a, a second big city, and they've moved to it. If the Dodgers had moved to Anaheim. We would think them a totally different team. I don't know. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, they'd be the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, wouldn't they? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what Rain FC should have done. We are Rain, We are the we are Seattle Rain FC of Tacoma. Yeah. No, I, they shouldn't. I'm very happy they didn't do that. Actually, I think uh, the Anaheim Angels. Um, I think that's dumb. <laughs> I can't believe I can't believe the sports world has gotten used to that too. Yeah, I, I've thought it was dumb forever, but it for for once it was the perfect moment to bring it up. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, yeah, I, I do think there's still a rivalry element here. It's a, it's basically the same Seattle team. It is still it, when you look at this league, there are still two West Coast teams, and, and then the rest of the teams are either Midwest or the East Coast. I think there's a rivalry element there, and I, I think that's going to continue to be. I, I'm sure we'll see some displays or, or extra. Uh, a little bit of extra oomph from the Rose City Riveters around it being the rain this weekend. I also really feel like in, in terms of when you look at the players and how the players view these games and what we see on the field, uh, that the North Carolina-Portland Thorns rivalry, it, that that has become more of a rivalry for me than rain versus um, the Thorns. And especially now that it's not even Seattle, I, I think it does maybe change things a, a little bit. I'm glad you brought that up because I think there are three things that have impacted the intensity of the Rain-Thorns rivalry that have nothing to do with geography. Uh, First, the emergence of North Carolina. This is going to wane eventually. When North Carolina's core phases out and Paul Riley moves on to another job, this is just going to look like a phase in history of these teams that was rivalry-esque. But you cannot deny that phase. 
it's almost getting to the point where, like on the Timbers side, people trying to deny that LAFC is a rivalry. They deny it for good reasons because it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels until you play the game and then it feels like a rivalry. And that's what North Carolina is right now. Secondly, I think the emergence of or the the emergence from nothing of Utah Royals FC, there is this weird kind of off-field standards rivalry between the two teams that is in danger of trickling onto the field, particularly given how Mallory Weber responded to being acquired by Utah and said a lot of things that I think probably are true. In a lot of ways, the Utah Royals have some amenities that are better than the Thorns right now, and part of that is... You know, playing in a almost century-old stadium and having your home base there. And part of that is Utah having the virtue of being able to see the Thorns as a standard. And maybe in some ways the Thorns need to step up a little bit. But I think the third thing, too, is also Utah Royals-related. When Laura Harvey went out of the rivalry, a little, pe- a little piece of the venom went out of the rivalry with it. It's just not the same with Flacco and Adnowski on the other side. So... I still consider this a rivalry, Jamie, but I think there are a lot of reasons to note that at this point in the rivalry's history, it feels different than it did three years ago. Yeah. Well, rivalry or not, what do the Thorns have to do? They're at home. You talked about all the reasons why it's more difficult for them going on the road, but they're at home now. Uh, Rain's in third place. They don't want the Thorns don't want them to beat them because the rain would move ahead of the Thorns in the standings. What do the Thorns have to do in this game to, to get a win at home? I think what the Thorns need to do is look at that loss column for the rain and see a one there and realize that there's a reason for that. And the same reason that anybody would look at the Thorns loss column and answer the question that they ask themselves, wow, how are they doing this with so many people done? They're doing it because their players are working their butts off. So if there's any, any illusion that because... Seattle is just getting a lot of their players back, that they're not going to have Megan Rapino, that they're not going to have Jody Taylor, that they're going to be missing a lot of players, that this is going to be easy. They just need to look around their own locker room, the Thorns, and look at the effort that players like Simone Charlie have given during this time, or Elizabeth Ball, or Midge Purse, and say, the names don't matter. This team is playing to a Seattle Reign FC level. So the, I think that's really the key. If the Thorns come out and play to their potential, they're winning this game. If they come out and are sluggish like they were against Utah, or against Utah a little bit rash at some time, at some moments, or they just take it for granted that because they don't see those big names in the rain lineup, that this is going to be somehow an easier game, then the rain can do to them what they've done to so many other teams this year and knock them off. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is a good. Se- uh, I almost called them Seattle. Um, this is a good rain team. Uh, they still have players. They still have Jess Fishlock. They they still have good players in that lineup, and, and they've been doing well during this period, even with making um, some major changes, not having Jody Taylor, not having Megan Rapino, which would hurt any team. This is going to be a tough game for the Thorns, but they're at home, and the expectation should be that they can win this game. It, it's just, I think, going to be a matter of what level we see from the Thorns, and they there has to be. It's different at home versus on the road, but they have to make adjustments from Houston and Utah because I do think they're going to have to play a little bit better to get the win here. Now, Jamie, we mentioned some of the players that are still in France right now as France is down to four teams. On Tuesday, the U.S. is going to be playing England. The other half of the bracket, it is Sweden against the Netherlands. Let's talk about the World Cup for a little bit. What a lot of people saw as the marquee game of the tournament, I, I agree with that. Quarterfinal matchup between the U.S. and France happened last week. U.S. scores an early goal, goes up 2 nothing, concedes late, advances 2-1. to What are your lingering feelings from that match? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, from a standpoint of getting interest in women's soccer, I, I think that was exactly the match we, we all sort of wanted. It wasn't decided on penalty kicks, which I think would have been just sad to get to that point, even though there would have been a lot of excitement. It was a hard fought match from both teams. The U.S. did go up to nothing. Um, I still want to see that replay of Tobin Heath's goal again because could have even <laughs> been three nothing. Um, but it was a close game. Um, I think that France probably didn't have their best game. And I had France played a little bit better. This might not have been the result. But overall, um, coming out of this game, I, I think you have to look at the U.S. as being the favorite now to, to win the entire World Cup if you didn't think that before. Uh, although it's not necessarily going to get that much easier against England. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to first talk about something that you mentioned, like France didn't necessarily have their best game. I think that, to flip it a little bit, that's if I were a, a France football fan, the thing that I would be most remiss about is that France didn't force the U.S. to play their best. Like that wasn't yeah. the best U.S. that we saw. We didn't even see the U.S. have to go out of their comfort zone. We didn't see them have to try anything. They went up early. France, although they had most of the possession throughout the game, the U.S. were comfortable in defending most of the game. It wasn't until the end that you really thought that they could be breached. And if that's just not the way you want to go out if you're France. On home, on home turf, for a lot of players, this is maybe going to be their last World Cup or they're going to be stretching it to make the last World Cup. And in that sense, for a generation of France players that really put France on the map starting in 2011, this was almost a last hurrah as far as World Cups go. One, that's not how you want to go out. But two, it, it is a reminder that for as much as we fret about the women's national team, the U.S. women's national team, they're the favorite in any match they go into any place the match is played. That doesn't mean they're going to win the match, but they should have reasonable expectations that they should win every match that they care about. And to be in Paris, to face the sec- what I think is the second best team in the world on their home turf, where that team and those players had everything in their career on the line, and to never even be down in that game, to only spend six minutes, was it? even even in that game, that says a lot for how much the U.S. is ahead of the rest of the world. Now, this England game, the reason I'm scared about it is that all of these advantages that we always put in the U.S.'s column, the, the strength, the physical nature, the athleticism, the, you know, the conditioning, their ability to be relentless, England can almost match those stylistically. The one place where England can't match the U.S. is... We just don't know if their mentality is on the same level, if their experience is going to allow them to get through this game. But the thing is, you don't have experience until you have it. When you have it, you get it by beating a team like the U.S. They have to be in these situations in order to gain the experience, and it's only until we see this game play out are we even going to know whether it was a factor. I'm more scared of this game than I am the France game, speaking from my Patriot point of view. Before the tournament, I thought England was the most dangerous team, England and Australia, because of their ability to physically match up with the U.S., and I still think this is going to be a more difficult game than the France game. Yeah, I mean, I think... I I don't think I would have necessarily said that at the beginning of the tournament. I think looking at how the France game played out and and now going into this game, I, I definitely feel equally as worried for the U.S. as I felt going into the France game, and I do think it was easier... Um, even though that was an exciting game and it was close, I, I do think it was easier than expected for the United States against France, from my opinion. Yeah, it, it's going to be a tough game. By the time people are listening to this, they might they might know what happened. Uh, but I, it, it's not it's not going to get any easier. 
Um, in fact, it might get it might be the easiest game that the U.S. has uh, between France, England. It's potentially going to be in the final if they get there. I would generally agree with that. Jamie, you don't know this, but as of right now, I'm introducing a new segment to our podcast. It's called In Our Feelings. And with this first segment that we're doing in this new segment, I'll introduce this question. How do you feel about Lindsey Horan not starting against France? We're in our feelings now. We can be honest. It's a safe space. Let's get in our feelings about Lindsey Horan. I feel, I feel very, I feel bad. I feel sad. No, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would say if I was actually uh, talking to someone about my feelings. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't like it. And I, I think, I, I mean, maybe if you think England can physically match up uh, against the, the United States, I don't know how that changes your opinion. I, I think Lindsay Horan can physically match up against other teams. I, I think she is more I, I think Sam Mewis and, and Rose Lavelle certainly um have played well in this tournament. I don't think Rose Lavelle played very well against France. Uh, so I don't think that I mean hindsight's twenty twenty, but but that makes you wonder uh why Haran didn't start there. Um I just think Lindsay Haran provides so much in the midfield that isn't all about going forward in the attack. There's just the little things that she is able to do there that I, I think are, are really helpful. And, and to some degree, she she's just never been as effective with the United States as we've seen with the Thorns, which isn't to say she's not effective. She's just been on another level with the Thorns. But I, I still think of her as one of the best midfielders in the world, and for her to not be on the field um, was a real surprise to me. And maybe it's because I follow the Thorns and this is my job and I see her every week, but it still feels like the wrong decision. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's a breakdown of process as much as anything else. Uh, I kind of tweeted through this when the lineup came out, so I'm repeating myself a little bit here. But you know, having some time to think about it and having some time to talk to other people about it, I, I still basically feel the same way. And I was talking with one of my uh, friends that I talk about world soccer a lot with, and we we're, we we're trying to think, okay, who in central midfield, be it a six or an eight, take the tens out of the equation because it's a completely different position, a six or eight, who would you really put in the same level as Lindsey Horan? And we only came up with like three or four other names. We didn't rank them. We just said this is what the conversation would be. But I think one of the issues is one of the three or four other names we came up with was Samantha Mewis. And it, what happened last week really forced me to think about what I think of Samantha Mewis. And I got to be honest. I said this in another podcast like re- recently. But I feel like it's almost a step of – I'm fighting my cowardice here knowing that our entire audience is Thorns fans. I'm not exactly sure I would rank Lindsey Horan above Samantha Mewis. I think it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to say, I prefer Samantha Mewis. I think it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to say, I prefer Lindsey Horan. I think the problem here is kind of, it appears Jill Ellis went into this game and said, I want to start at six, so that's going to be Julie Ertz. I want to start at 10, so Rose Lavelle is my best 10. So this puts me in a situation where I have to choose between Lindsey Horan and Sam Mewis. What kind of process is that, that you end up making a choice between Sam Mewis and Lindsey Horan? The process should be, I'm trying to get to both. I'm trying to get to a place where I can say, I'm going to play both Lindsey Horan and Sam Mewis. And like you said, I completely agree with you. I don't think Rose Lavelle had a good game on Friday. I think part of that is because the U.S. scored so early and the nature of the game changed. But how come Jill Ellis and her staff didn't foresee that? Did they just not foresee a scenario where the U.S. scores the first goal? Because once the U.S. scores the first goal, all of the qualities that differentiate Horan from Lavelle as an 8 or a 6 become more important than having Lavelle in the lineup. 
So I have a lot of questions about it. I do see the logic of it. I don't think it's so so unforeseen that Lindsey Horan doesn't start that game. I do think that most coaches would not have had Lindsey Horan on the bench for the most important game of your tournament. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. <laughs> and, and I feel terrible for Lindsay too. I think one thing that I forgot to mention is you talked about you talked about something that made me think of confidence. The confidence that players have when they're in an environment that they know the coaching staff believes in them. What do you think Lindsay Horan feels right now about the belief Jill Ellis has in her? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not great. <laughs> I'm sure that. That was rough for her uh, emotionally. I, I mean, she's a professional and she has gone to this level, not just because of her talent and physical attributes and, and what she can do on the field, but clearly because she has the right mentality to be here. Um, so maybe she's just going to be able to shake this off. But yeah, from a confidence standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, for not being able to be in that game against France, which you probably circled on your calendar uh, when, when the brackets came out, uh, that that definitely has to be difficult. Yeah, very difficult. Well, let's not stay in this space, Jamie. Segment over. We are now out of our feelings. <laughs> let's get back into Thorne's world a little bit. We have one other listener question to get to. Jeffrey, if Mark Parsons can continue to deliver a top four team without national team players, is he up for coach of the year? I mean, he's not going to have to do that. And, and so I think basically you can all but say the World Cup period's over. I mean, the Thorns won't have their U.S. players back immediately, but they'll have everyone else. The fact that Parsons did deliver a top four team during the World Cup period, yes, I, I think that. And the fact that Thorns are in first place, I, I think given that Parsons has been able to navigate, um, put this team in a position to be the best in the league with their best players without a lot of those players, Right now, I would definitely put him in a coach of the year uh, candidate right now. If not, he'd probably be my vote for a coach of the year. Yeah, I was thinking about this this weekend, too. Uh, You know, Mark Parsons has done all you would have wanted him to do during this period. And even before this period, going back to the preseason, preparing these players to step in and the way that they were able to step in seamlessly and being able to instill a completely different style of play really during this period and get everybody on the same page and executing it. I I do think though, where I will stop short of saying uh, he should be coach of the year, I definitely agree, Jeffrey, that he should be up for coach of the year, is that whenever I used to vote for these awards, I would just make a list of the challenges that coaches overcame during the year. And I phrase that very specifically because in coach of the year voting, sometimes we go one of two ways. We look at the teams at the top of the table and give that person the coach of the year. I think that's what happened with Paul Riley last year where everybody was kind of like, wow, they went a whole season with only one loss. He has to be coach of the year. Maybe. But I also think of, as a coach, your main job is to overcome challenges. So just listing out the challenges that everybody has and assessing those. And obviously, part of the challenge this year is losing nine players to the World Cup. Part of the challenge this year is Emily Menges having a couple of injuries that have to be overcome. Part of the challenge this year is just the actual player development of talents like Simone Charlie and Gabby Seiler. I think, though... Well, I think, one, the voters should do that for every coach in the league. And secondly, I think if they do, even going through the coaches in the league in my mind right now, I really can't think of another coach that has – maybe Vladko Adonofsky because they've done very well. I really can't think of another coach that has as many challenges they've had to overcome. 
and sorry, just talking through it, I also think people are disproportionately going to look at Richie Burke in Washington and think, oh, Washington is so much better than last year. Richie Burke must have done a fabulous job. That team has good players. Richie Burke should not get bonus points because last year's coach didn't do well. It's about this year, and I think Mark Parsons has done a great job. All right, well, can Mark Parsons do a great job on Friday when the Thorns play the rain? That's our first prediction that we want to get to. Um, I will go first because I'm predicting the score. I do. I, I think that I think that the Thorns are going to be able to find a way to get a win here. Um, I think they're going to learn their lessons from maybe that Utah game and, and from Houston over the weekend and, and put in a strong performance at home. And I feel like given how well the rain have done this year, this is going out a little bit on the limb, but I'm going to be confident and I'm going to say that Thorns are going to win three to one. Yeah, I think they're certainly going to be intent on improving on the performance from last Friday against Utah, and that would be a reason why I would think your prediction makes sense. Uh, I'm going to go with a bit of a cowardly prediction here because in my heart, I kind of want to say that Haley Rosso scores a goal. But I'm broadening this out a little bit, increasing my odds, and saying at least one Australian scores a goal. And you know what? I didn't even say one Australian Thorn scores a goal. Look at that. Being tricky. Being tricky about it. Uh, Jamie, there is another game this weekend on Sunday. The Timbers are going to be at Yankee Stadium to take on New York City FC. I'll start with my prediction first on this one. You know, This is, again, a pretty cowardly prediction because if you see the way that New York City FC plays, you could probably say this about every team that goes into Yankee Stadium. I'm saying the Timbers finish this match with less than 45% possession. The only way I really think that changes is if New York City scores an early goal and Portland spends either all the second half or more than that chasing the game. Um, I'm still saying the Timbers finish with less than 45% possession. Now, Jamie, it's your turn to give your customary prediction two to one victory for the home team. Correct? Yes. <laughs> no, really? Yes. Oh, yes. Jamie. Oh no. Uh, yeah. Oh, well we talked I'm about this go. last week. I know I'm going to go with a two to one home win for New York. Uh, I, I don't, I think this is going to be a tough game for the Timbers. I think when you look at the stretch it, of the MLS games, this is probably the this is the least important of this really tough stretch coming up. I think there are probably going to be at least some lineup rotations in this one, if not a complete lineup rotation, and it's a tough place to travel to. So, two one loss. Um, I, I talked myself into keeping that prediction, even though I was thinking maybe a one zero loss uh, because of how the Timbers are going to play. Uh, but I am going to go two one loss here. Jamie, fantasy update. We've got two leagues to update this week, and we've got a lot of team names that we haven't said a lot this year. You know, we're kind of used to, you know, the, the teams that jumped out early during the spring season and kind of stayed at the top of the table. Now we've got completely new teams, as evidenced by the head-to-head league, which is in its second week. All of these teams are 2-0-0. They're being ranked based on the points they accumulated through those first two weeks. But in third place, Mateo FC. I mean, I, I hadn't heard that one before. It sounds vaguely familiar, but also because it's just not, you know, it's a name that maybe sounds like other ones. Second place, Meatloaf, just Meatloaf. And then in first place, Pisco. A lot of new, not a new team stepping up here in this one, Jamie. I'm, I don't know whether to be impressed or scared about the next names that are going to come. Yeah, I think it's early, so we'll see uh, if uh, some of our uh, favorites from last season, in terms of favorites, in terms of being the, the top of the standings, Although I think Richard has some favorites in terms of names too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I get back in there, but uh, yeah, there, there's a little bit of some differences here. I think um, look at our open league, uh, which is in its first week. 
there is a name I recognize here. In third place, we have Fake Plastic Team. Always uh, reminds me of Radiohead. <laughs> uh, that's what it's supposed to do, right? So probably, Yeah, that's Brad. Second place, we have... I will read the letters. We have FCWTF. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, Christian. And in first place, we have Shiver Me Timbers. Mm. That's a good one. Yeah, some uh, nice... Is Tyler. Yeah, some nice wordplay from the first and third place teams. They should get extra points for that. Um, you know, the person who helps us with these fantasy league updates, Mark, sent us a note that it's a huge week for fantasy because a lot of teams are playing twice. Uh, I would list them all, but just a, a quick count here. It looks like 12 of the 24 teams in MLS are doing double duty this week. So be sure to check to see which players in your team have the opportunity to score double points, but also, just as important, be sure to check which teams, which players have an opportunity to not score double points. And I think we went a little bit longer than usual today, somehow, even though we only had a few games to talk about. So I'm, I'm a little scared about what that means for this uh, five-game and 15-day stretch we have coming up. <laughs> um, but we'll have plenty to talk about next week. Uh, we will be back next week. We're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Oregon Live and Some Town Footy. And that's all for today. So until next week, take care. <laughs>